You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to John 18 as we continue in our study of John's Gospel. John 18. We're going to pick up with the verse we left off last time. Just a little bit of overlap. Verse 12. John 18, verse 12. I think everyone's found their place. I invite you to follow along as I read. John 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know, no, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your blessing as we come to this passage of Scripture, which is disturbing on so many fronts, Father. We pray, O oh Father, that you would be pleased to bless us this morning, Lord, that you would bless us with understanding. And in the midst of the corruption and darkness, that we would see your compassion. We would see your grace. We would see your nature and find ourselves drawn afresh to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. This morning I want to just jump into verse 12 and we'll just do a review as we go along rather than doing a review. I'm worried if I start a review I won't discipline myself and the sermon will be unduly long. So let's just get into verse 12 and we'll review as we go along and I'll bring others into the context of this uh, as we go along. 
In verse 12, we're told that a band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And this is where we left off last time. Last time, where did we find Jesus? Jesus had led his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. The upper room discourse, as it's been historically called by the church, is now complete. And we have seen that this has covered chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Jesus spent a lot of time with his disciples preparing them for his physical departure, even praying at the end, first praying for himself, and that sounds a little bit self-centered when we think about it, but given what Jesus is about to endure, of course he's praying for himself. But when we read the prayer, we suddenly discover that it's not self-centered in any way. For, the, for what does Jesus pray for? Lord, glorify the Son that he may what? that he may glorify you. And then Jesus from there prays for his disciples who will be apostles, who will take this message to the world. And from there, he prays for those who will believe through their word. And I always love to make the content. I always love to make the connection. Those who will believe through their word. Here we are 2,000 years later, 6,000 miles removed in Chester, West Virginia, studying what? Their word. Isn't that amazing? I love to make those connections. It's heartwarming to make that connection. Why? Because Jesus was praying for us, wasn't he? It included us. When we read the high priestly prayer, as it's been called, of John 17, Jesus is eventually coming around to praying for us, isn't he? In fact, we could say he's praying for us from start to finish because what is he doing praying in the first place? He's praying that the work that he has come to do will be successful and will be carried out and it will be glorifying to God. And as it's glorifying to God, what? It's redeeming for us, isn't it? One and the same. One and the same. And we also saw that Jesus is completely in control of the events that take place. As these soldiers, probably 200, between 200 and 600 soldiers, a mixture of, of uh, Roman soldiers and temple police, as they come in armed with weapons, they come in with their lanterns, they come in with their torches. It's so dark that Malchus doesn't recognize Peter, right? It's dark. They're in the midst of darkness. They come looking for Jesus. There would have been plenty of opportunity for Jesus to hide. But what does Jesus do? He approaches them. It's almost like when they show up, Jesus says, hey, can I help you? Who are you looking for? As if Jesus didn't know. Jesus is there for a divine appointment. There's a divine rendezvous to take place there. And what's interesting is the one that they seek with all the clubs and all of the swords and everything comes and approaches them. And as as he identifies himself to them, what happens? They fall down. They fall down. Jesus is completely in control of this. And then in verse 12, what does Jesus do? He allows himself to be arrested. We're told there that he is bound. And I brought out a, um, a comment that was made by an old preacher a long time ago who said that before Jesus was bound by the shackles, He was already bound by his love. And we added to that to say that those shackles, those chains that Jesus is bound by actually become emblematic of his love, don't they? You know, he he basically puts both hands out for for those shackles. Why does he do it? He does it for the glory of the Father, for sure, but he also does it for you and he does it for me, doesn't he? So he is now arrested, and we're told in verse 13 that he's first led to Annas, 
for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest. That's verse 13. We need to stop here, and and there's some explanation that's needed in regards to Annas, uh, because it can be confusing. Annas is mentioned, I think, in four uh, texts in the New Testament. And sometimes it's confusing because it almost sounds like there are two high priests where we're told Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. And we would ask ourselves, wait a second, who is the high priest? Is it Annas or is it Caiaphas? Well, on the books, it's Caiaphas. But Annas has so much influence. He has so much steam, if you will, behind the scenes that uh, scholars, historians tell us that Annas, even though he wasn't officially on the seat, really was the voice of the Sanhedrin. And this is often the case in politics and in leadership, isn't it? Where the one who has the official title really isn't the one who's running things. That's often the case. Uh, It's often the case. I know some of you are smiling. Uh, I'm not trying to get political, but as we go through this, you can make, I'll just leave you all to draw your own conclusions. Um, Because what we have here is a way, it's the way that the elites work. It's just how they work. They're not new. It's not a 21st century American phenomenon. It's been going on for many centuries, and it has a very old playbook, and we see it at play right here. Who is Annas? He is a very wealthy man. It seems that his wealth has come from the proceeds from the sale of the uh, coin exchangers and the sacrifices that were sold in the temple courts. And you say, well, that brings back a memory, doesn't it? Yeah. Didn't Jesus go in there and like turn the tables over and cause the coins to go falling everywhere and run everywhere? Yeah, that's it. Ooh, I bet he got in a real bad way with Annas doing that. Yes, he did. Um, He did. Annas is very wealthy. He's very ruthless. He is very much on about his position. Annas is so influential that five of his sons served as high priests, including, or well, in in addition to Caiaphas, who is his uh, father-in-law. And we're going to ask ourselves, how are these, how how is it? A high priest is is a high priest for life, right? Yes, according to Jewish law, high priest is a high priest for life. Well, then they'll say, well, how is it that they're making, how is it that Annas is high priest and he isn't high priest and five of his sons become high priests and now Caiaphas is high priest? It's because the Romans were appointing these men. And you can now begin to understand politically why uh, the Jews so much wanted rid of Roman occupation. This is against their law. The high priest was high priest for life. Annas was installed as high priest in 6 AD by Quirinius. And someone said, well, Quirinius, that sounds familiar. Yeah, he's in, he's in the, the birth narratives, you know, in Luke chapter, uh, was it chapter 3, I think, chapter 2 uh, of Luke, Quirinius. Who was Quirinius? He was a governor. Okay, he's installing high priests. Yes, he installs Annas in 6 AD. Annas is deposed by Gratus, another governor, around 15 Five of Annas' sons are high priests, and at, at some point you can do the math and you can see that it's almost like they have a new high priest each year. Uh, the Romans are appointing them and defrocking them and appointing them and defrocking them, and Caiaphas is made high priest in the year 18 A.D., and he has the longest run of anyone, the historians tell us. He is high priest from 18 to 36 and some of them might say, 36, that sounds familiar. 36, that's the year that Pontius Pilate was defrocked, isn't it? Yeah, boy. 
They both go in the same year. God does clean house. Um, he does clean house. And so what we have here, in many folks' mind, Annas is the high priest. It's like Annas is the unspoken high priest, while all these other people are coming and going. Annas is the guy. And it's interesting. John is the only one who gives us this detail. Notice they first take Jesus to Annas. Annas is first, or Jesus is first led to Annas, where he is father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, we're given a reminder in verse 14 that it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Sounds like a political slogan, doesn't it? It is in one sense a political slogan. If you go back to chapter 11, it would do us well to review in chapter 11, starting with verse 45. And while you're turning there, the context, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. You remember that story. Lazarus, friend of Jesus, uh, brother of Mary and Martha. He dies. He's in the tomb for four days. And in verse 45, after Jesus raises him from the dead, we're told that many believed in Jesus because they saw what he did. In verse 46, some of them ran to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Verse 47, so the chiefs and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come down and take away what? Both our place and our nation. It doesn't say they'll take away our nation. It doesn't even say they'll take away our nation and our place. It says they'll take away our place and, yeah, in our nation. Notice the places. Eh? It's, it's, only, it's first and foremost. What these folks care about most is their place. They have a really cozy place. They're very wealthy. They're very powerful. They want rid of Jesus. Why? Because he's messing this all up, isn't he? He's messing. I mean, he just went right into the temple courts and he just threw those tables down and scattered all that coinage like he thinks he owns the place. Who does he think he is? Well, he's got to go. And regardless of all of the evidence that has been shown, he just raised someone from the dead who had been in a tomb for four days. No one is, no one is trying to discredit the miracle. You notice that? No one discredits it. No one says, oh, it was a hoax. Nobody says that. They recognize that this indeed happened. And then Caiaphas, he steps up in verse 49, and he says, he says, you know nothing at all. Someone might say, that sounds kind of rude, doesn't it? Exactly. Uh, he was notorious for being rude, for being ruthless, for being arrogant, and being hypocritical. And someone said, well, what did he do for a living? He was the high priest. And we can think of the corruption of the high priesthood that's in view here. Uh, horribly corrupt, if you will. And by the way, if I just might make application right now, this is one of the reasons why institutionalism has really fallen on such hard times. People don't trust institutions today, and they got good reason for it. And unfortunately, many people don't trust the church today because of things like this. But what I want to say to that, the application I want to make to that, is we've got to be sure that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We see that it was this way while Jesus walked the earth. And it's going to be this way until Jesus returns in varying degrees in varying places. And we want to make sure that the enemy doesn't get the upper hand on us by leading us into discouragement and keeping us away from the church, the true church. 
It is a joy, it is a privilege to be gathered in the company of the people of God, to be doing what we're doing right now. And we don't want to let the evil one, the world, the flesh, and the devil, if you will, take us away uh, from that. Does that make sense? We need to understand this is the way. The, 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 the devil is assaulting the church with everything he is allowed to have. And this is what we see. These guys don't walk around. They slither as they move around. These guys are snakes and Caiaphas. He says to them, you know nothing at all, verse 50, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Notice this all for the people. One man should die for the people. This is for the benefit of the people. Imagine that. This is for the benefit of the people. As it's often put, the commentaries, turn to the commentaries, and the commentaries will often say Caiaphas spoke more than he knew. What's Caiaphas thinking about? He's thinking about his place. He wants to protect his place. But actually, the words he, that he is speaking are words that God has given to us for communication. God is actually communicating through him. It's really tough to take in, isn't it? That God would communicate through somebody like that, but he is doing it. We're told in verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas actually is preaching the gospel. Now, it doesn't do him any good, because Caiaphas means it for evil. And the irony of this is, I, is Caiaphas says that he's doing these things because he wants to protect the nation, but what Caiaphas and Annas and all these religious leaders are doing in actuality is they're leading the nation to judgment. They will be judged in A.D. 70 when the Romans come in and sack the whole place. There isn't one stone that's left on standing on another one as the Romans come in and destroy the temple, this magnificent building that took more than 46 years to build. They sack it. But on the other side of this, what is God doing? He's communicating the gospel through him. It couldn't be said, uh, Caiaphas, you, you never knew the gospel. Caiaphas, you spoke the gospel. You actually preached the gospel when you stood up and told everybody that they didn't know anything. How ironic. He accuses them of knowing nothing, and then he speaks these words, and they do him no benefit. Now, we could say much more about that, but let's get back to John 18. Let's get back to this text here. We're told that they led Jesus first to Annas, for he was, high for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest. And in verse 14, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. That's the first scene of the text we come to this morning. Now, now we're, we're taken to another scene. It's important that we see that. This structure is going to be important in understanding what this is all about. Now we go to a second scene, and the second scene invo uh, involves Simon Peter, who is following Jesus. And we're told that another disciple follows Jesus. Um, and we're told that this disciple was known to the high priest. Now, just a couple of things on the side. is I've always assumed the other disciple to be John. That's always been my assumption, and I think it's probably most of our assumptions. But I just want to point out to you that we're not given his identity, and outstanding biblical interpreters have been on both sides of this. Some state that we don't know who he is, and some, some say probably John. Uh, I think the ESV study Bible notes says something like probably John, uh, but we're not sure who he is. And one of the leading arguments against John being this disciple is the fact that 
this disciple is known to the high priest. And some will say that, you know, John, he was just a fisherman. How could he be known to the high priest? And I think what we have here, when we make that argument, is an example of eisegesis. Someone say, what's eisegesis? Well, it's the opposite of exegesis. Well, that's not helpful. What is exegesis? Exegesis is drawing the meaning out of the text. Eisegesis is putting meaning into the text. And I think sometimes, perhaps, we're taking meaning. We're taking 21st century American culture and even 20th century culture and bringing it into the ancient culture. Because we, we argue like this. John's a lowly fisherman. He shouldn't be known to the high priest because he's a fisherman. Um, you know, an illustration, I don't want to put that on the spot, but an illustration, I can't think of this without thinking of this story. Years and years and years ago, and I'm not going to give any any names to protect the guilty. But years and years ago, um, dad was at a doctor's appointment. He's making small talk with his doctor, and he mentioned that he had just bought a Corvette. And he told the doctor who he bought the Corvette from, and the doctor said to him, how do you know that person? He used, instead of that person, he used his name. And the implication was rude. I mean, the implication was like, how does somebody like you know somebody like him? And these things exist in our culture, don't they? These lines, these lines are sharp. And it is, it does have a tendency, especially today, one of the things that the elites today do not want to be doing is tripping over the likes of us. They don't. And we take these lines, if you will, we take these these sharp lines and, and we read them into the text and we say, well, this must have been the case in the first century. However, some have made the argument that they weren't quite so sharp back then. For a lot of the famous rabbis worked with their hands. They had a trade. They were encouraged to have a trade. Like Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, he was a tent maker, wasn't he? So they had no problem with rolling up their sleeves. And furthermore, I mean, some have advanced the argument that John could have been related to the high priest. There could have been a relative. That could have been the connection. But another argument can be made was John was a fisherman, and his father had a fishing business that done well enough that they had employees, and perhaps the high priests were their customers. They bought fish from somebody. Again, we don't know. But I just want you to be aware of some of the arguments here. We don't know who this disciple is. He is unnamed. He could be John. I'm still inclined to believe that he's probably John, but we can't be sure. He is not named. But what we do know is if it's John, John and Peter follow Jesus. So they've scattered in the garden upon Jesus' arrest, but they've gained courage, and now they're starting to follow They're following Jesus. And this unknown disciple has access to the courtyard of the priest, which he utilizes. And then he goes in and he um, uh, gives word to get admittance for Peter. In verse 16, we're told that Peter is standing outside at the door and the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So, so if it's John, John goes into the courtyard. He's known to them. He has easy access. He, sa- he says a good word for Peter, and Peter is brought in. Now, in verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And what does he say? He says, I am not. I am not. Now, verse 18, the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. 
And Peter was also with him, standing and warming himself. And you have to wonder, you know, I, when I read that, I wonder, what is significant about a fire? What, what is significant about that? You know, it's kind of maybe the way my mind works is, of all the details that could be offered, why is this detail being offered? Why? Why the fire, you know? And, well, here's, here is, I think, the detail. Notice, um, notice that Peter is standing and warming himself with them. You remember last week when I made the, the, the case that Judas is standing with those who are coming to arrest Jesus? He was standing with them, and with the light of Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the way of sinners. And I said, look, here is Judas standing, standing in the way of sinners. Well, guess what? Peter is now doing it. I think that's the significance of this fire. Now, some, some would say, well, he's, you know, there's the fire, and, and he's doing this just so he doesn't draw attention to himself. Maybe that's the case, but it still doesn't take it away. He is standing with them, isn't he? He's standing with a group of people who are denying Jesus. It's, it's dark, isn't it? It's dark. Now, the scene changes again, back to Annas and Jesus. The high priest here in verse 19, I take to be Annas because of verse 24, because after in verse 24, we're told that Jesus is then sent to Caiaphas. But so Annas questions Jesus about two things, his disciples and his teaching. Well, why? Why these two things? We can understand the teaching. Why the disciples? Because Annas is powerless. As much power as he has, he does not have the power to execute Jesus, which is what he wants to do, and they want to do it quickly. The Passover is at hand. They want to get this thing over with. They have to get this thing done. And they need to make their case to the Romans because they don't have the authority to crucify Jesus. Now, if they can go to the Romans and say, hey, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of disciples, what a great case could be made and a quick case uh, that could be made. But I think there's a second reason. There's probably multiple reasons for Annas. I think Annas wants to know what kind of political fallout is going to come out of this after it's done. Where are these disciples? How many of them are there? What kind of mess are we going to have after we do this thing? And notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't answer the question about the disciples. Jesus has promised to protect them, and he has prayed that the Father will protect them. And Jesus has made good. And what's important is we remember that when Jesus was arrested, he told everybody, listen, you seek me, you take me, you leave them alone. And I made a case last week that Jesus is not bartering here. It's not like the movies we see where, okay, one guy steps forward and says, hey, listen, just take me, but let them go, and it's up to the bad guys what they do. Jesus is protecting them. It's not up to the bad guys. Jesus is giving an order. You let them go, and they scatter. Jesus has given them out. He's given them an out, and let's hold on to that for a moment. Jesus answers them. He completely ignores Annas in regards to the disciples. And in verse 20, he says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. And we might say, well, wait a second. Jesus says, I've said nothing in secret. Jesus had lots of private conversations. What's he talking about? I've said nothing in secret. What Jesus is doing here, Jesus is on trial. And what he is talking about is the integrity of his message. The message that I spoke in public has been the same message that I've spoken in private. What's the difference? The difference is in private, Jesus has went into further detail. 
Jesus would preach a parable, for example. Then in private, he would explain it. Nicodemus comes to him at night. Jesus explains to him nothing sinister. Jesus just gives further explanation of his preaching of the kingdom of heaven, doesn't he? He says, I've done nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Verse 21. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And here, what Jesus is saying here is, according to Roman law at this time, they're supposed to go uh, interrogate witnesses. They're supposed to do their work. They're supposed to, they're supposed to go get all these witnesses and bring these charges together before they do the arrest. But what they have done is the arrest. Now they're trying to bring up the charges. They already arrested Jesus. Now they're looking for a charge that they can sink their teeth into to get him uh, executed. And what Jesus is saying here, in essence, is go ask them. What Jesus is basically saying is, give me a fair trial. That's what Jesus is saying. Give me a fair trial. Now, this strikes a chord when you look at verse 22. When Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus is asking for a fair trial. He is suggesting that there could be some corruption going on here. You think? And he is struck by an underling. Some suggest that the underling is doing nothing more than trying to get points with his boss. That is very plausible. It's an ugly and hideous scene. But who is the high priest here? Who truly is the high priest? It's the one who just got struck. And Jesus answered him in verse 23. He says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas in verse 24 sees that he's getting nowhere. He sends Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then the scene changes one more time. Here we're back to Peter. And Peter is standing and warming himself. Notice that's, notice that's given to us again. Isn't that interesting? It's given to us again. They're back at the fire. Peter's warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. Then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Malchus had cut off, asked him, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Now, just in a few minutes we have left here, what are we to make of this? What are we to make of this? Notice there's a comparison. Notice how the two scenes are interwoven to one another. Jesus before Annas, Peter before the others. Jesus before Annas, Peter before the others. You see that structure there. And what is going on here? What's happening? Peter has been given an out. You know, Peter inquired, he inquired when Jesus back in chapter 13 said, listen, I have to go. You can't come with me. Where I'm going, you cannot follow. Peter goes, listen, I'm willing to follow you even if it means laying down my life. And Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, listen, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. You'll have denied me three times. And sometimes we go straight from that to Peter cowering before a servant girl. But I, there's, there's a step we shouldn't skip. Peter does make good on his promise with Jesus in the garden. Peter is outnumbered. I think that between them, best we can tell from the New Testament, 
Jesus and his little band only have two swords. We have about 200 soldiers on the minimum carrying weapons. Nevertheless, Peter said, I will die with you. And he pulls out his sword. And what is he doing? He's making good on that promise. You see, Peter is misguided, but he loves Jesus, doesn't he? What else would make him want to do that? He thinks he has to help Jesus. I better help Jesus. I better do something. And Peter, this is a a constant thing with Peter. He has a self-confidence problem. And Jesus says, Peter, listen, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And the same one who had the courage to pull out a sword, so outnumbered, cowers before a young girl who simply says, you're not one of the disciples, are you? What happened? Peter crosses a boundary. I agree with the commentaries that talk about there's boundaries here. Jesus gave them out. They are to scatter. Jesus recognizing. You remember last week I said a lot about how God providentially works in our lives and how God so protects these. As the disciples are abandoning Jesus, what is Jesus doing? He's protecting them because he knows that their faith is not strong enough and they're not ready for what's coming. They're just not ready, and he protects them. But nevertheless, Peter follows, and he jumps into something that he's not ready for. And what leads him to do that? It's his self-confidence. And some go, oh, my goodness. I think I see myself in here. Yes. That's why the Bible has been called a mirror. The moral of the story isn't go be like Jesus instead of being like Peter. The moral of the story is Peter has a self-confidence problem, and so do we. Now, I'm not saying we all have the same level of self-confidence, that we're all equally uh, bent that way. Our constitutions are different. Our personalities are different. But uh, what, what causes us to be reading our Bibles for a half an hour only to discover we haven't asked God yet in prayer to teach us from his word? Am I the only one who's ever done that? What makes me think I can understand God's word without him teaching me? Is it the grades I got in seminary? Or how about two hours into sermon preparation and I just realize I've not prayed? If there's anything that happens here this morning that has any eternal significance or any eternal benefit to you, it's going to be because God has blessed you. It isn't going to be because of the grades I got in seminary. What makes us think we can do these grand things? What makes us think we can step into these places where we have no credentials? What makes us think that we can do these things? And what happens if we don't get this in check? What happens is eventually God will probably let us go into a place. He will probably let us go into a place where we are woefully inadequate. And he will allow us to fall, but only fall to a certain point. Satan has asked that Peter be sifted as wheat. And he would have been if it were not for Jesus who said to Satan, no. He's mine. And I will protect him. And all that God is doing in this is fashioning and shaping Peter more and more like Jesus.
That's what's going on when we fall, if we're truly in love with Jesus, isn't it? We're told from the other gospel writers that when Peter heard the rooster crow, that he did what? He wept. He wept. He lo- the difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter loves Jesus. But Peter's self-confidence got him around a charcoal fire where he was standing with the sinners who were denying Jesus. And our self-confidence will get us to the same place. Does that make sense? Self-confidence is the enemy of the gospel. Well, someone will say, well, well, how do I know if I'm being self-confident? And, you know, we don't have time to go into, you know, three ways you can be sure you're self-confident. I don't even have anything like that prepared because the answer isn't like that. The answer is like this. You will know if you're abiding in Jesus. The answer isn't isn't to be written out in three things to avoid uh, for self-confidence. That's, I don't think that's the answer. Pastorally speaking, if one of you came to me and said, man, I'm a pastor, I got this self-confidence problem, the first thing I would say is, okay, welcome to the club. I got one too. And all I can say to you is what I say to myself is I have a tendency to be more self-confident when I'm not abiding. And I have a tendency to be less self-confident when I'm abiding. So my, 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 my counsel to you is abide. Abide and you'll be fruitful. Because as we abide in Jesus and as we cling to Jesus in this posture that, Lord... We can't have a worship service without you. That's why we pray at the beginning. I can't, I can't study and learn anything, profit from my Bible reading without you. That's why I pray before I do that. I don't want to preach and, and teach a sermon that I haven't prayed for. That's why I pray before I do that. And for the fact of the matter, I should be praying before I do everything. Lord, lead me and guide me in everything that I do. And as we do that, guess what? I think we'll have the discernment. We'll have the proper discernment not to walk in self-confidence. I think that's the best answer we can give to this. It's not a one, two, and three, or one through eight. Or If we started itemizing, how long would the list eventually be? So let us be sure that we abide. And Jesus has already given us that lesson in John 15, hasn't he? He gave them that lesson that night. Abide in me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, to a passage like this, Father, we just see how dangerous it is to follow you. We see, O oh Father, how viciously the world is trying to destroy, not only destroy what you're building, but even to destroy you. And, O oh Father, we recognize that our hearts, they once were fallen, and, Lord, we would have been counted among their number. And, O oh Father, these, these thoughts and these truths, they so humble us, Lord. And, O oh Father... Lord, uh, may we be uh, on guard. May we be watchful of self-confidence, for we see what happens to Peter. He ultimately gets into this because of his self-confidence. But, Father, we're so thankful that the gospel doesn't end here in John 18. But, Father, we're so thankful that one of the last things that John does in his gospel shows how you call Peter back into fellowship with you. Oh, Father, we're so thankful that if we're in you, And we're abiding in you, O Lord, that, O Father, we are safe. But apart from you, O Lord, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.